0: Welcome to the Blister Podcast, a program dedicated to interesting people, the great outdoors, and a bunch of other stuff we like. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, the founder of Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Adventure photographer Corey Rich has spent a lot of time hanging out with and documenting some of the most interesting and amazing athletes in the world. And turns out he is exceptionally good at talking about his experiences so today you are in for a treat furthermore corey has just released an excellent new book called stories behind the images lessons from a life in adventure photography so this was the perfect occasion for a conversation with corey about his remarkable career why being good at hanging out is a great quality of a photographer why making mistakes and being vulnerable makes for great storytelling, and Corey shares some stories about his time with some of the seminal figures in rock climbing, like Fred Becky, Chris Sharma, Tommy Caldwell, and Ashima Shirashi. We also talk about what separates Corey's new book, Stories Behind the Images, from most other photo books, and spoiler alert, this isn't just a photo book. We talk about how changes in photography and film technology affect his work, what Corey's dream assignment would be, and much, much more. And so, as I said, I think you all are going to really enjoy this conversation. I certainly did. And I would highly recommend that you head over to storiesbehindtheimages.com to order a copy of this book. And in my conversation with Corey, you'll hear me make the case for why I think you all should check out this book. Okay, with that, let's go ahead and get to my conversation with Corey Rich. Corey Rich,
1: how are you today and where are you today? I am... Awesome I'm doing great I'm <laughs> sitting in my office in South Lake Tahoe California and uh, and I'm in this typical state of mind which is um, I'm I'm looking at the calendar and kind of counting the days down until I depart on the 31st for uh, for a giant project overseas and it's I'm I feel like this is my life I'm trying to pack a ton of stuff you know I, let's say I have 14 days remaining right now and I'm trying to squeeze. Thirty days worth of stuff into those fourteen days, so that's that's kind of my reality always. Always,
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, normally, when we you know record a conversation, it's we're going to take that conversation live just within a couple of days of having recorded. But yeah, given your schedule and uh, given the release date of this book of yours that is coming out. This is kind of getting near to be one of our last opportunities to talk because, um, well, why don't you tell us where, where are you off to for the next 30 days or so?
1: <laughs> well, you know, I mean, nowadays, lots of my assignments I'm not allowed to talk about. I mean, I, I actually oftentimes have friends and colleagues that I think sometimes wonder, do you work anymore? Like, what are you doing? (laughs) And most of that's born out of, I mean, it's safe to say I'm busier than I've ever been in my entire life and career with work. It's just a lot of the work that I do. It's, you know, for fortune 100 style companies and a lot of it's confidential and top secret. And they like to kind of keep the magic close to their chest as one um, executive once told me. And, you know, they, they want to keep the focus in a smart way on, what we're shooting the product it's like the final product and so uh but i can i can at least because it will be over by the time this airs um i am going to fiji with an awesome team eight other photographers and uh, two picture editors and a producer and we are going to shoot the still photo so all of the advertising and marketing and social media images for the Eco Challenge Adventure Race, which is a, a a Mark Burnett production, kind of it was the original reality TV show before there was Survivor and and all of the other uh, reality TV shows. Mark Burnett produced Eco Challenge, and I was a kid in college um, working for Mark, uh, shooting the Eco Challenge. And now, geez, I think close to fifteen years later, um, we're going back as a team, and uh, and and we're we're shooting the uh, Eco challenge and it's kind of a rad project because it was an opportunity to tap many of my colleagues and many of the photographers that I admire who are specialists in, in the adventure world, but also in kind of, um, reportage style documentary photography. And we're all heading over to do coverage, which is, um, which is pretty rad. And then I, th- I think I have this right. You go from that project and literally skip to the next one. Yeah, that's the, yeah, that, yeah, that's, you know, it's funny, we, we spend a lot of time in my office looking at the calendar and it's the conversations are often around like, could you fly directly from Fiji to, you know, to this other destination? And how do we get your gear there? And which crew goes with you? Yeah, but I'm, I'm going to fly directly from Fiji to a shoot in the United States that really is top secret and that I, I can't talk about and we will probably never <laughs> get to talk about. But I'll post obscure images on social media where you'll scratch your head and say, "What are they doing? <laughs> where are they?" Um, but yeah, so I'll go directly into it. Uh, you know, I think Fiji's three weeks, and then we'll go directly into a ten-day shoot domestically. And then I couldn't be more excited. I go directly from that top-secret shoot into the the book tour for stories behind the images, and um, and that I'm I'm just really excited to be sharing the stories and sharing the book and kind of sharing my enthusiasm for photography and filmmaking with, uh, with, with folks who are, who show up for these presentations. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm just really pumped about the book coming out.
0: And again, we're talking you know, about this um, roughly a month, a little more than a month before the publication date, which I believe is September 30th uh, on the book. Is this tour still developing? Do, is this, do you
1: already have the stops uh, laid out? Yeah, you know, I'm learning a lot um, about the book tour, you know, day by day. But it, it is evolving. I think there's 15 or so dates that are locked right now. Uh, most of them are domestic. A few are international. I know I'm committed to going to Portugal um, and I'm going to Canada, Banff for, for two stops and um you know the 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 goal always my philosophy is you know try to reach as many people um as i can if i'm going to spend time teaching or sharing and so you know we're trying to make these stops you know decent sized where we can kind of you know have a have a decent sized audience and and you know i've learned in presenting and speaking it's way more fun when you have a crowd it's way more fun it's way more fun when you have a good crowd where people are into it and and they're there because they're really engaged in in what the presenter's talking about. And you know, I, I, I listen to a ton of I listen to a ton of podcasts and I, you know, I hear com- com- comedians talk about, you know, good crowds versus bad crowds. And, you know, for me the ultimate is, you know, I'll, I want outdoor enthusiasts and photography enthusiasts sitting in the audience. And I think if if those two user groups are sitting in the crowd, we're gonna have fun. We're gonna have a good time. I would highly, highly encourage
0: people to turn out. Why don't we have you talk a little bit about how you
1: describe this book? Sure. You know, one of my goals with this book, I I really wanted it to be entertaining first and foremost. You know, this is not an artistic statement. This book, just to be clear, this is entertainment, and and this is this is not a hardcover oversized photo book that sits on a coffee table and collects dust i sort of really fought hard to make sure that it was soft covered and and a pretty reasonable price point because i kind of want i and i wanted it small so that it can fit in your backpack so that when you're traveling you can throw it in your backpack and it's like putting three magazines in your backpack and you know in some ways calling it a photo book is almost the wrong description this is these are essays. You know, they happen to be essays about photographs, and those those handful. There's 56 photographs in the book, and those photographs are displayed either across a you know double page spread or a single full page. And there's occasionally a behind the scenes photograph, but really this is a book, as the title implies. These are stories behind the images. These essays um, are oftentimes um, educational. There's there's interesting insights and information. Um, about really what happened behind the scenes. How was the photograph made? They're sort of caricatures of each of the people in the photographs. Um, you know, I've, I've always, one of my favorite aspects of this job is spending time with some of the greatest athletes and most interesting people in the world. And so, you know, oftentimes it's this rare glimpse into how do their minds work. Um, oftentimes they're pretty self deprecating. It's the lessons I learned along the way. I mean I'm I'm sort of the most just straightforward guy and I'm the first to own when I'm not doing something right or screwed something up or made a mistake. And and I never quite intended for it to be a memoir, but but really it's it now that you know the set of images spans my career and you know from the age of 20 when I really started working in college, maybe even a little earlier closer to like 16 years old and I'm now 43 the book really covers that duration of time, so there's sort of a, a you know memoir aspect to the project, um, and you know I and I just I, I really went out of my way to make sure that the essays were entertaining, and there were a new a number of essays that we threw out um, because they just you know they didn't they didn't add enough, they didn't check one of the boxes, which is it wasn't insightful enough, it wasn't um, educational enough, there wasn't enough of a character, there wasn't enough of a lesson, there wasn't enough of a sort of you know, there was no self-deprecating humor. And so, you know, we really tried to tighten it up and make it the best set of essays. In fact, I think with most photo books, you think about, you start by what are the greatest photos? And it's worth pointing out, these 56 pictures, they're not necessarily my best photos. They're, they're the set of photos that are most compelling to tell some interesting stories. You know, there's a couple duds in the book. There's a couple of photos that I'm not super proud of. You know, wh- one photo jumps out. There's a photograph of uh, Jack Johnson, the musician, and Kelly <laughs> Slater, the surfer. And it's literally a photo that I screwed up. That's the whole <laughs> essay is about how I fucked up doing this giant shoot at the Hollywood Bowl with Kelly Slater and Jack Johnson. And, and it's you know, it, it, it was kind of hard to commit to putting some of those photos in the book. But that's the spirit of the book. Hopefully... Hopefully the reader picks up this book and they're inspired, entertained, um, and they learn something along the way. And, you know, and to do all three of those things, I sort of have to be vulnerable. And I tried to make myself pretty vulnerable in the book.
0: I love that you brought up the, the Slater, Jack Johnson, and Ben Harper chapter. That chapter, this is a thing that's now happened several times across these chapters, there's an initial fuck up in that story, and then that's not actually the primary
1: fuck up. <laughs> you know, there's a few chapters in the book where I still read them and laugh, and that's one. I mean, that's actually one where, but you know, I, I, for me, it's one of the best parts of this career is that it's unscripted. Right? There's just a ton of ambiguity in in the life of a photographer, storyteller, filmmaker, and I and I think at a very core level. It's part of the attraction to the outdoors, my attraction to the outdoors and my attraction to photography in that, you know, you, you, I always say like, I never have two identical days and it's, it's actually really true. I think in my entire career, you know, that now spans from, you know, 16 years old to 43 years old, there might be some similar days, but it's, they're they're totally different. It's just, you know, there's ambiguity is just ever present. And I think that's what I love. It's like I'm constantly adapting and learning and trying, you know, the older I get, the more I realize the reason I get hired to take pictures, it's not because I'm the greatest photographer in the world. It's like there's a lot of damn talented photographers out there. You know, I, I admire the work of, you know, many of my colleagues. They're really good. But what they're hiring is experience. I mean, they're hiring Someone's paying me today at 43 years old to not make the mistakes that I made at 25 and they and and that's you know th- there's no substitute for that mileage I mean it turns out you know there's probably this bell curve that at some point like okay so I have a ton of experience but now I'm just a crappy photographer hopefully I haven't gotten there yet <laughs> but 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 that but it's really true it's like that is that that is what you know not just me but the you know the guys that are work the men and women that are working a lot right now in the photography world at the highest level or in the filmmaking world what they're paying for is it obviously a skill set which is you know, there's raw talent and, and you know how to look through a viewfinder and capture compelling images. But even more than that, because I think there's a lot of people that know how to do that. And that number is growing year by year. They're paying for that cumulative experience that you can't get any other way than just a lot of mileage. You know, it's sort of like that, that runner, you know, the first time you do a marathon, you're, you know that look your first marathon versus your 50th marathon you you just go in far more informed you might not be faster your 50th marathon it depends on you know there's that age continuum yeah <laughs> that yeah. goes into it but you know I, I like to think that i'm like entering my prime right now you know the next 10 years might be sort of the the best years of my career creatively and and even from a business perspective and and i think part of that is I'm just I'm just even more clear about what I like to do, what, you know, what sort of lights that fire. And I have that experience to know when to say no and when to say yes and, you know, hopefully I'm fucking up less than I used to in my 20s and 30s. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know though, cuz
0: I mean, this book actually we'll get to this, but this book actually kind of begs for a sequel. <laughs> but if, if you don't have any of the screw ups, you know, cause you dialed everything in so perfectly, I don't know. The sequel might not be as good, but, uh,
1: so I don't, I don't know. I Here's to you still screwing up. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. I don't want to. Yeah, certainly there's no question. And I mean, one of the philosophies that I've adopted, and maybe it's just a personality trait, I, I, I'm going to continue to make mistakes the rest of my career. I mean, I think that's part of being human and. I think the key, and it's something that I've just embraced from the beginning, maybe mentors taught me this, but it's just when you fuck up, you just own it. You just own it. You make it clear right away. You own it. You don't hide it. You don't sort of put, pass it off, pawn it off on someone else. It's, I did it but now. Like, how do we problem solve? I mean, that's half of this job. is problem solving. It's sort of, you know, you go in with the best laid plans. You know, it's that classic, you plan for the plan for the worst, hope for the best. Because the the great plans never quite work out. But that's actually that spontaneity, that's also the unpredictable nature, is what makes awesome freaking pictures and great stories.
0: The thing that really strikes me too, this is a really compelling history book. Um, I mean, perhaps especially about climbing. But just going back and revisiting, like I actually was finding myself thinking this book is going to become more important
1: as the years go by. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a really interesting observation. I, um, I, I do, I've realized over time, particularly in the climbing world, that I, I never intended to be a historian. But it's, you're right, there, there is this kind of 20-year you know, window, two decades, where I think I was one of the historians in, in rock climbing. And, and it's an, it's a really interesting observation that you made. It's, um you know, one of the reasons I did this book, you know, I now have a little girl. She's six years old. And I've found that as I sit around campfires and tell stories, my little girl loves hearing stories. You know, it's not a day passes where we're driving in the car somewhere and she says, um, Papai, she's, my wife is Brazilian, so she calls me Papai and she says, Papai, can you tell me that story about and she remembers all of these stories that i tell to my friends while we're sitting at campfires or on our deck or around the island in our in our kitchen and i and but i do notice i've noticed over time and it's a natural phenomena i think it's hard to remember it's harder to remember some of the stories from 30 and 20 and 15 years ago and i and i had this realization one day that dang i should i should write these down because it's going to be harder when she's 20 And wants to hear about sort of my life and my friends and the experiences that we've had, it's just gonna be a lot rustier because then I'm gonna be now now these stories will be 40 years old. And so that was part of the motivation. And I I know it's a very cliche thing. I mean, we say this to each other all the time. You know, you say it to your friends and to athletes, you know, oh, you should really you should write those down. And so, but I I'm not a huge writer. I'm I'm definitely more of an a, an oral storyteller, like I, it is my, one of my favorite, if, if photography is my favorite thing in the world, making pictures right next to it is telling stories and sharing stories, you know, sitting around and weaving a yarn. And I mean, I, I love listening to stories. I'm more, I actually enjoy listening more than I do telling stories, but sometimes to get great stories other out of other people, I have to tell a few stories to sort of, you know, loosen the room <laughs> to warm them up. And so anyway, yeah, that was part of the motivation. And so I, the, the, you know, the process in which this book was created is actually pretty interesting. I am, um, I'm a realist. I know what my strengths are and I know what my weaknesses are. And uh, I had this realization that I'm, a, I think I'm a pretty good storyteller when we're sitting around the campfire. It is painful for me to sit down at a computer and, and write an essay. Um, and so I embraced this idea that I'm going to tell stories orally, and then I'm going to work with a, a gifted writer who can kind of make that 20-minute monologue into a you know thousand-word essay. And so I had the great gift of working with Andrew Bisharat. Um Andrew was a editor at Rock and Ice magazine for years. He's a gifted writer. Works for National Geographic a ton. Um, he and I work on lots of projects together. You know, outside of this book. And so we, you know, our process was I would literally sit down or, I mean, I did it in all kinds of crazy environments. I would, I would with my iPhone using voice memos, I would either sit down and tell a story or sometimes I would do it while riding my bike or sitting in an airport lounge or in a, you know, hotel bar with like Muzak playing in the background. And I would, as though I was sitting around six people at a campfire, I would just tell the story. And then Andrew would put it into a thousand words and then we'd go back and forth for, you know, two weeks on that essay um, in a written form, kind of cutting it down and changing the narrative and kind of, you know, honing the story. And and that's how this this book was actually put together.
0: You talk a bit, little bit about that collaboration at the end of the book and my God, what a successful collaboration. I was like, you guys need to do more of this. It really is striking and, and I, I really not, I always call myself a C plus photographer. Like that's literally like, I'm, I'm your guy. If you need a C plus right. photographer, I'm your guy. <laughs> so words is a little more in my wheelhouse. And, um, I just wasn't expecting the kind
1: of twists and turns and yeah. to be getting nervous. Yeah. Maybe I'll start. Yeah. If you don't mind, I'm going to borrow that line. I'm a C plus B minus writer, <laughs> sure. but a, you know, yeah. an A level storyteller and Andrew's an A plus level well I think Andrew's both he's a genius he's an a plus level writer and a great storyteller but um yeah that that was the that was the process and but it's something that came out as Andrew and I worked on on the book the the climbing the historical component of climbing that's how Andrew and I met i mean our we, you know we go way back because he was on the magazine side and I was on the photography side. You know sort of, it, over the last twenty years documenting climbing and and it, it you know it's interesting that observation you made because that became apparent as we sort of assembled the chapters and worked on the essays that boy, there are a few of the pivotal moments in modern day climbing in this book you know and i'm and I'm just i'm you know i I guess I want to make this overarching statement, which is I wouldn't have a career and there wouldn't be a book if it if it weren't for. The incredible people in these photographs, allowing me into their lives, and that's you know the Tommy Caldwells, the Beth Rodens, the Chris Sharma's, the Alex Honnolds, the Kelly Slaters. That you know that is what allows a photographer. You know the only way I can make pictures, and the only way I can sort of be a part of these stories and and tell pull the curtain back and tell these stories. It's because I was allowed into the lives of these people, and and um, you know these people in most cases they're not just people i met once these are you know my best friends that i've now grown up with and and i feel i mean i just feel really fortunate i feel really fortunate that i've had the opportunity that i was granted that permission um and that i've you know that i've had the honor and pleasure of sort of being inspired by them i mean i you know i i i feel like that's one of the great you know, kind of benefits of this career is that by by default, I spend time around people that are amazing. And they've, you know, they all everyone in these photographs, everyone that's helped make these photographs, because there's people behind the scenes, you know, they've, they've made me a better person. I mean, I, I'm surrounded by role models and heroes all the time. And, um, you know, that's, that's, I'm, you know, I'm I'm thankful for that.
0: I talked about how these chapters, they're uh, there seems to be a bit of like, okay, I think I know where this is going. And then all of a sudden it's, we're in a different place. Another example of this is, is uh, well, one of the sections on Tommy Caldwell. The first half of it, I was almost crying as you were talking about him as this hero and why we sometimes in our, I don't know, celebrity culture celebrate certain individuals and others maybe not as much and i'm just like if i was nodding any harder i would have snapped my neck in half i think (laughs) and 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 then even that chapter swerves um and so i don't i don't want to spoil it for anyone but um Yeah. And then I was like sweating, like, like sitting here reading and sweating, um, as that one finishes up. So, and I guess I'll just say, I'm glad you're still around.
1: (laughs) You know, one, one, um, criteria, and I, I, I think I adopted this philosophy pretty early in life. And I think many of us do. I think it's a natural human instinct is we just want to be surrounded by good people, right? Like life is short. You want to be surrounded by good people. You want positivity and you want to be happy. And I think early in my career, I instinctively realized, man, I don't want to work with assholes. Like every time I'm on a project, and it doesn't happen very often, where I'm surrounded by people that are negative and it's the glass half empty. They're just, you know, they're they're just they're just not good people. I'm not happy. I don't do good work. I don't perform well in those environments. And but but I also applied that philosophy to this book it was something that i early on realized as we realized all of these essays would become a book i thought no one's going in this book who's an asshole like life's too short i, I don't want to celebrate anybody who doesn't deserve being celebrated and and i think that's you know when you talk about role models you alluded to guy can i call many people heroes in this book that's not by mistake i mean these people there's not a person in this book who is you know either isn't an incredible person you know sort of in a hero or role model realm and by that you know to be a hero or role model in my book I'm pretty critical that's you're really good at what you do you're you know you're one of the best you're passionate but you're also compassionate and you're a good person it's you know you're sort of you're walking the talk you're not full of shit like you're really doing what you're you know you're you're walking the talk and and I can and it makes me really proud to say that, you know, every person in this book, at least to the degree that I know them or spent time with them, they're solid. They're rock solid. And, you know, I I don't know, I just grew up looking at, you know, people, you know, you want to I, I always want to admire people. I admire a lot of folks around me, mentors, you know, colleagues. And, um, you know, you, you just, you need those shining stars. I need those shining stars that are just really good people and they're doing it right. Because I think they, they act as kind of a North star for all of us. And by the way, related to everything you've just been
0: saying, I mean, there's a lovely chapter on Fred Becky. And, uh, once again, I think, you know, a lot of people would agree with this other people probably need to read that chapter to understand this. But when you were talking about just the seminal place that Becky, uh, holds in the history of climbing, um, that's a wonderful capture. And, and again, it's in some ways like not much of a photo, your, uh, pretty famous photo of Becky, but it's definitely still one of my favorite. And you could show me gorgeous vistas of Yosemite and wonderful ski shots and the rest. And that one is still stands as one of my all time favorite photos. Um, so again, that is very much a chapter uh, worth checking out, and, oh, and some thanks, wonderful words
1: thanks. to accompany it. Um, yeah. Even you talking about Fred, by the way, just puts a smile on my face. Just the the memories of there's not an interaction. There was never an interaction with Fred that didn't have you know eventually tears in my eyes out of sheer laughter and like the (laughs) admiring his zest and like joy and appreciation for life. So um, I'm talking with a smile because it's, you know, Fred is one of those guys that he was a one of a kind and I'm gosh, am I honored that he was, I was part of his life in some small way. So the historian hat,
0: I am just curious if I ask you about Chris Sharma Right now, right. I mean, we are have Alex Honnold's huge accomplishments have um, been plastered pretty far and wide recently, and deservingly so. You know, we've talked a lot in the last several years about the Dawn Wall and Caldwell's accomplishments there with Kevin, and we see a whole crop of super strong climbers and boulders coming up. And i guess i just was curious to ask somebody who's in a good position to kind of weigh in or talk about this how do you think about sharma in the scheme of this whole climbing world
1: yeah i mean i think there's two two things immediately come to mind um you know in my lifetime i've yet to meet a more talented climber than chris sharma like chris is from the very first interaction with Chris, and he was young when we first met. I guess so was I. <laughs> <laughs> um, but Chris is a phenom, right? I mean, he's a he's a one in a billion type person. I mean, he is. I mean, he's a one of a kind. Chris is, and I, I think i I'm, It's safe to say this. I think you know Alex would say this about Chris. Tommy would say this about Chris. You know, Beth would say this about all of the other great climbers of of this generation would say it about Chris. Chris was like born with this natural physical ability and intellectual ability to climb hard and like see the few. I mean, he was ahead of his time from the first moment he touched rock and he defined a generation of climbing. I mean, he really he set the bar, set the standard for how hard people could climb. So, I mean that that you know that's one I always say that that I you know in each sport there is the per- there's a Chris Sharma somebody that they are they are like genetically built to do a certain thing and and but it's not always that they find that thing and so you know Chris found it like he he was programmed to be the greatest rock climber on the planet and and he found rock climbing and he sh- and he was he was he he was the greatest rock climber on the planet for a long time and you know I, I don't know adam andra well but maybe adams adams like chris is handing the baton to adam he might be that next iteration of like he's the next generation of he's he's a freaking badass like he's programmed to do what he's doing and i think you could say that about every sport right michael jordan was that guy in basketball during a certain era Like he was just, he had it all and he found the sport of basketball. So I I guess one, I was, uh, you know, I wanted to say that, but the, but the other thought that comes to mind with Chris, and I think I can say this about not just Chris, but sort of our generation. And I'm, I'm grouping myself into this generation, which is, it's those of us that were part of the climbing culture and climbing industry and the sport of climbing for the last 20 years. And we're now in our kind of late thirties you know, early to mid 40s, you know, I, I don't know what that generation is called, you know, we're, we're, we're after the stone masters, we're certainly after that kind of the golden age of climbing. Um, but I think there's also we're watching this natural progression or evolution of, of what happens. And, and part of it is, it's, it's how gracefully both the athletes, the photographers, the filmmakers, the sort of everybody attached to the industry evolves as a human and, you know, I mean, Chris is still climbing really hard. I mean, Chris is still an incredibly gifted athlete. But what he's also done is he's, you know, he sort of switched gears. He shifted from fifth gear as a climber into sort of fourth gear. I mean, maybe I'm using the wrong gears, but he shifted into like, Chris is now an entrepreneur. Like, Chris figured out how to make this love and, and love for climbing and experiencing climbing into a, into a career a sustainable, you know, occupation that will allow him to kind of go into that next phase of his life, which is have a family, get married, have two kids, sort of, you know, buy a home, pay a mortgage. And, and so, you know, and when we look back at the golden age of climbing, that's what Royal Robbins did. You know, he created Royal Robbins clothing. It's what Tom Frost did. He created Chimera Equipment, the lighting equipment company. It's what Yvonne Chouinard did. He created Patagonia and Chouinard Equipment. And I think we're witnessing that right now. With our, we're kind of getting into that age, where, you know, Chris is like it's really admired. My wife and I and our daughter were in Spain last year, and we and we visited Chris and his family. And I have to say, it was so awesome to see Chris in that role, where he's he's running a thriving gym in Barcelona. You know, he's created a brand of climbing gyms, and who deserves that more in the in the boom of climbing gyms? Chris Sharma should own, he should have a brand in climbing gyms and it's, and it's, uh, you know, he's created a little media entity within the gym. You know, there's content being created around him at all times for social media, which, you know, bolsters his brand. I, you know, it's, it's really, I mean, I love seeing, and it's one of the things that I enjoy is having those conversations with, you know, my peers from this generation of how our worlds evolve beyond the actual physical act of climbing, or in my case, beyond the physical act of depressing a shutter to make a picture. It's how do we success, how do we actually evolve as humans so that we can experience where, where our roots are still in the climbing world, and it's what we care about in the adventure world, but how do we also live a fulfilling life outside of, of just being at the crag every day or depressing the shutter every day. And it's, uh, you know, I'm not sure if that's where you were going, but it's, I have to say, Chris is like, it's, it's, it's incredible to see what in particular, what Chris has done both as a climber, but now also as a, as an entrepreneur, um, you know, to kind of lead to, to lead that second part of our our lives. or so that other part, it's that add on that other super fulfilling, rich part of life, which is, you know, having a family and being able to support that family.
0: I want to ask you about one other climber, Ashima. And what I find so interesting about her, I've I've never had the chance to meet her. I hope that changes someday. But this is somebody who literally grew up and is growing up in front of us And given social media, this is now the case of every single climber now coming up, right? And this is so strange and remarkable and different and the new norm, I think. And so I'd love to hear you talk about her. And I'd also, I guess, love to hear you talk about this new space we're in where, you know, it used to be um, certain athletes would need to call you up. Right, if there was going to be any visuals out there of these folks, and magazines would need to get these photographers. We now live in this space where everybody just grows up
1: because we're videotaping our entire lives. It seems. Yeah, no, no, that's it. Yeah, I mean, I think we're all trying to wrap our heads around what the hell are we doing with social media? Like, what, what, what? The access to our lives that we're pro- that we're providing to the public, and I, I mean that whether it's you or I, or whether that's Shima, or whether it's you know um, Kim Kardashian, it's I, you know I don't know. I think we're all. Well, I, I don't think we we do not understand sort of the ramifications of what we're doing right now. Um, but but it's fair to say that we're we're all most of us are participants. You know, we're we're all in, at some level embracing social media, and in embracing social media, at some level, we're kind of opening our we're 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 exposing our lives, like we're open we're pulling back the curtain. And you know, I, with with Ashima, you know, I, I guess I met Ashima when she was in her early teens. You know, maybe she was thirteen or fourteen. And by the way, I should give the disclaimer. I'm a, uh, I'm awful with time and, and like dates. So <laughs> that's why that you was had to write of, this book. <laughs> yeah, it was really, and that was a really painful part of the book. I had to do a lot of, you know, kind of research to figure out when did that really happen? Because in my mind, it all feels like it was just a few years ago, but now I realize, oh no, no, that was 20 years ago. That was, you know, 10 years ago. But when I met Ashima, she was a teenager, and one of the things that struck me immediately, we were doing a shoot for um for Adidas, and we were doing a it was a portrait shoot in New York City. And and we did the shoot, and Ashima was great. She, you know, we kind of shot for an hour or two. And at the end of the shoot, she was just she was just so genuinely like an open, open book. Just shoot there was nothing hidden, there was no facade, it was here I am, this is me. And, and I, and I remember it was just so endearing at the end of the shoot, her father was there and, uh, and she said, you know, was, I don't know, seven o'clock at night. And she said, should we all get pizza? Like, should we all get pizza? And, and I, and I remember it was, you know, it was a small shoot and, and I thought, God, that's just such an unusual, I'd never met Ashima before. And, you know, her father was also just as open. He said, yeah, let's get, you know, let's get pizza. And then, and we walked to, like, a pizza parlor down the street in, in Manhattan. And and then, of course, her mom showed up. And all of a sudden, it's like, there's Ashima's family and this 13-year-old girl. And just this super genuine, open conversation about life and being a kid and in New York. And, you know, a, a father who was a dancer, you know, Japanese buto dancer. And, you know, it came out in that conversation that one of my good friends, Joe McNally, uh, one of the legends in photography, had photographed her father years ago and it and it just struck me in that moment that Ashima is just she's she's comfortable in who she is in her own skin it was obviously super smart you know obvious it goes without saying that she was a super gifted climber then and now and I think what hasn't changed is you know she's just open like she's just really open I think I've never asked her about this but my guess is her philosophy is eh, it's easier to just be honest and put it all out there all the time than to kind of create some like image or you know worry about sort of how you're perceived and and that's what I really see when I sometimes read a post from Ashima I think god she just wears her heart on her sleeve I mean it, like she just puts it out there and and I think there's something really refreshing about that that you're not being there's no PR team I don't think behind Ashima telling you what you, you know trying to convince you of what you should be thinking about Ashima which is pretty <laughs> admirable
0: if there is a pr team it must be a very frustrated pr team
1: (laughs) they they just drink heavily or maybe um yeah and i think there's value i mean to hear a a, you know to hear her talk about her trials and tribulations in life as a young woman and 2019 as an athlete and that man i mean kudos to her my guess is there's a lot of people look there's a lot of people getting real like high value out of what she's saying as opposed to just painting the picture of a totally glamorous life where everything's perfect all the time.
0: One question I had is, you guys did a very interesting job of sprinkling throughout this book, tips and instructions and suggestions and advice for, I'd say, aspiring photographers. And, And sometimes it was just an openness and a willingness to talk about how you got the shot, and I guess I'm curious, we've spent a lot of time talking about the stor- these stories and the narratives and the portraits of these folks. How on earth you found a balance of also sprinkling in kind of photography instruction. Was that something that you and Andrew spent a lot of time kind of working and reworking or did that feel like a fairly natural part of this? You know,
1: in the beginning, I think that the original essays, they were probably 50% photo instruction, you know, how to, like how to, and then 50% the story. And then it just became really obvious to both of us that the stories were just far more entertaining than photo instruction. But there were like nuggets of photo instruction that were valuable. You know, I've always had this belief, one of my really good friends, Lincoln Els, he's a documentary filmmaker and photographer, and lincoln many of you listening to this podcast might know lincoln he was the first ever climbing ranger in yosemite national park but lincoln always loves to say in the photography world and in the filmmaking world there's no secret sauce like anyone that believes they have a secret sauce and that's what like separates them from the pack you know they're they're disillusioned and and so that that's always been my belief that there's nothing that i don't want to share i'll answer any question i'll share the details i'll send you the settings i'll and But I think that's a generational thing. I think the you know, the generation before me was much more guarded around, you know, the technique. It's the, you know, the sort of what lens and what aperture and what do you do to your film back then to kind of make it work or that special filter that we were using. Now, I think that's all bullshit. Like, I think, you know, hiding, you know, the Internet's incredible. Um, I think the photographers that share the most, that kind of share the tips and tricks and, you know, the quote unquote secret sauce, it, it raises the bar for everyone. And so I've always felt that way. And but but in the editing process, we sort of tried to reserve the photography tips and tricks to the stuff that was sort of the most useful that, you know, someone could really, we didn't want to, you know, look, as soon as it feels like a textbook, I don't want to read it. And that was the litmus test. If I don't want to read my own book, nobody else is going to want to read it. <laughs> and so I, I wanted to keep the entertainment value high. And, and in, in my mind, the entertainment comes from great stories about incredible people and you know the sort of the, the the mistakes I made, but mixed in there, we tried to sprinkle some some real tips that have been learned, you know, over a career. Um, you know, usually kind of more holistic, broad statements around photography, but definitely there's some pretty granular insights into uh, how any one picture was made. Um, oftentimes, I think it becomes in the form of here's what not to do, <laughs> here's what didn't work, and and then here's my suggestion for how to do it correctly you know, on on one other thought on that front, I, um, you know, I always say that if I weren't a photographer, I'd be a teacher. Like I, you know, and I think that's because I've had a, I had a lot of mentors who were teachers. In fact, I think some of the most pivotal moments in my life, in my career are because of school teachers that I had, you know, as far back as junior high school and high school and college, you know, there's a handful of people that you know, they sort of recognized something, a lot of passion in me, maybe some raw talent, but, uh, you know, a lot of hard work and, a, you know, hopefully a decent guy. And so I, I always say that, like, if I weren't, if this career hadn't worked, I'd i would be a high school or college teacher, you know, just dishing out information and trying to identify that person, that kid that's just super psyched and has enough raw talent that we can sort of, you know, shape and uh, and I felt like I got to do a little of that in this book because I you know I'm not in a classroom every day.
0: By the way, uh, tangent from my questions about photography, but talk a little bit about your background.
1: Yeah, you know I was um, I grew up in the Mojave Desert of California, so kind of out near Edwards Air Force Base. It's where the space shuttle used to land, and um, and I. I was a gymnast as a kid, pretty strong. You know, I worked out six days a week in a gym, you know, pretty high level gymnast. And that just pretty naturally translated to uh, to rock climbing. And you know, I had a junior high school teacher that invited me to go rock climbing. And instantly I just fell in love with um, every aspect of climbing, you know, the culture, the sport, the adventure of, of rock climbing. And then I, I picked up a camera, my dad's camera, and tried to start documenting those weekend adventures. And like most photographers, at least of that era pre iPhone, I, I figured out really quickly like, damn, just having a decent camera did not equate to great photographs. I needed to figure out how to use the camera and, and evolve as a photographer. And so, kind of these two simultaneous pursuits, you know, began to 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 shape or evolve at the same time. And that was going on as many rock climbing adventure trips as possible, but also you know sh- learning how to become a, a solid photographer that could shoot storytelling pictures. And so I, um, yeah, eventually it was time to, I I got a newspaper internship when I was in college. I mean, in high school at the Antelope Valley Press, I was photo six. That was my radio handle. And I drove around and shot real estate photos for the newspaper in the beginning. And which is not glamorous, by the way, that's like a list of, you know, a hundred addresses. And I would drive around shooting black and white film you know, out the window of the car for the real estate section. But eventually I graduated into, you know, shooting real assignments that kind of cut me some slack and let me, you know, shoot on, on you know, real assignments on the weekends. And, you know, they were always playing tricks on me. I was like the young kid on staff. And so they'd, they'd send me to, like, hilarious assignments that were never going to run in the newspaper. They once sent me to uh, the adult bookstore to photograph a, uh, like a, a, a porn star signing autographs for her fan club. <laughs>
0: Amazing.
1: <laughs> and, and I was like 17 years old and like worried they wouldn't even let me into the adult bookstore. And, and I mean, it was, you know, it's like the most awkward assignment ever. And I was worried about like a front page story, you know, front page photograph that could run, uh, you know, above the fold, you know, that didn't have nudity, which is impossible. It turns out to shoot in an adult bookstore, Um, But, but I, but so then I I went off to college. My mom and my dad was a teacher and my mom was a nurse and they made it crystal clear I was going to college. Um, And so I, I went to San Jose State University and and Jim McNay, who was an incredible, he was running the journalism school at San Jose State. And, uh, and Jim was this, another incredible mentor that sort of, you know, recognized this freshman was you know, really passionate and excited. And and so he encouraged me to apply for an internship right away. And so I landed my first summer at the Modesto Bee. And the Modesto Bee was very strategic because that's about two hours from Yosemite National Park. And so, again, all summer long, I had this opportunity to sort of hone my photography skills, my storytelling skills um, while getting paid, which was sort of this amazing scenario where I'm, you know, shooting six assignments a day and they're paying for my film and i had a company car and I, I forgot what my radio handle was then it wasn't photo six anymore but you know this was a bigger newspaper and i had a beeper a pager that that uh, that i wore and like tons of awesome experiences working for the newspaper you know the beauty of of working for a newspaper is you you shoot every day so it's muscle memory you're just flexing that muscle that creative muscle a lot and, you know, quirky, funny assignments, you know, everything from the pet of the week to the Oscar Mayer mobile being repainted, you know, and, and and your goal is to go in there and make interesting photographs and, you know, not F it up and deliver on time. And, you know, 75% of the time I did that, the other 25% of the time I made some mistake <laughs> and, and learned from it. You know, but it was, it goes back to early in our conversation, just mileage. You know, that was, that's how you get mileage. You just got to shoot. Like you can, you can talk about taking pictures and talk about photography until you're blue in the face, but there's no substitute for doing it. And so I got a ton of experience and I went back for a second summer as an intern at the Modesto B and, and I was really close to the staff at the Modesto B. I kind of worked through the school year. I'd kind of on weekends drive to Modesto And I became really close to Al Golub, who was the director of photography at the Modesto B, and he helped me devise a plan. And, you know, there was this dilemma while I was working at the Modesto B and shooting for newspapers. I was I was doing everything but shoot. You know, the reason I got into photography was to photograph rock climbing. And, you know, I I barely had time to climb because I was so busy, you know, shooting the pet of the week and portraits (laughs) of the mayor and and you know, on one hand I was becoming a much better photographer because of that mileage and like flexing that muscle, the muscle memory. And, but I, but I felt this calling. I realized, man, I I want to be out shooting climbing. And so Al Golub helped me devise a plan to take a semester off from school. And so I saved $3,000 and I I bought a hundred rolls of Fuji Velvia film. And I announced to my mom and dad that I was going to take a semester off and And after, you know, some, some real negotiation, they agreed. And I took six months off and drove around the Western United States and applied everything that I had learned in photography, working at the Antelope Valley Press and the Modesto B and the school newspaper and the school yearbook and reading books. And, and I finally went out and photographed the thing I cared most about. And, and that was it. As soon as I, boy, as soon as I, I got a taste of what that world was like, which was, you know out on out in the america west pulling into campgrounds hanging off ropes hanging around campfires hearing stories and telling stories that was it like i you know i i didn't know then that i could turn it into a career but when i when i look back i mean those those were some of the most magical moments that first 6 months out there applying all of this you know passion for photography but to the sport that i cared so deeply about which was rock climbing
0: you talk in the book about some of the new experimentations and the kind of implementations of new technologies and so are you still encountering and finding these new technological either breakthroughs or just new technologies that you're playing with and tinkering
1: with sure sure you know i i think to be relevant in the in the world of photography or filmmaking or or visual storytelling You have to be eyes wide open. You've got to be cognizant of what's happening on the technological front. Um, But, you know, one thing I remind myself of all the time is content is king, right? At the end of the day, it's, it's, it's about the image. It's about the story. And what tool you shoot that on is secondary to what the story is, right? We other, I always say that, like, A photograph or a film or or music or a piece of writing it either moves people or it doesn't and and I don't give a shit what resolution (laughs) that file is or how good the sound mix is or the you know how great the color is it's either good or it's not that's all there is to it and occasionally it's great it's either good or it's great or it's not and and it's one of those three categories and if if you look at a picture and, it, and you react, like the hair on the back of the neck stands up, you you sort of, you know, an audible wow comes out of your mouth. It inspires you to kind of call your partner and say, why don't we, let's go to Yosemite this weekend. Um, it inspires you to walk out the door and take your dog for a hike. That's a good picture. Like that, that did something to you. So. That's you know that's what we're all striving for, right? In whatever our art, in whatever our craft, we're striving for good or great. And it's hard to make good or great. It doesn't happen every time you press that shutter, every time you pick up the guitar, or you know start typing on a keyboard. But we're striving for good or great. And but 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 it's also it would be naive of me to say that I'm not paying attention to technology. You know I'm I'm not the early adopter. That's for sure. It's pretty rare that I'm the first guy. To grab a new piece of technology and sort of try to figure out how to use it, um, but I'm very conscious of, and so are the guys that I work with. You know, if there's a tool that makes our job easier, meaning I can spend less mental energy fumbling with controls and calculating exposure and trying to get the focus correct, I'm going to use it. I mean, I like I. I want my focus to be on what's happening on the other side of that camera, not how to operate the camera. Um, and, you know, and I've I've always um, like i like I want I want to tell effective. I want I want to tell stories in the most effective way I want to move people and so I'm always open to sort of new Approaches, you know, I, I got pretty involved with virtual reality 360 degree virtual reality And you know look it, it doesn't see it doesn't appear that it, you know totally caught I mean, it's it's sort of we dabbled in it as a society for a couple of years that you know now we're going into kind of 180 degree VR, or, you know AR but I'm you know, I'm open to it. It's like I'm always I'm just always striving for I want to see people react. You know, I wanna and I use my mom as like that litmus test, right? If my my mom is gonna tell me that actually she's she's not your typical mom that everything I show her, she says, Oh, that's incredible, Corey, because you're my son. She'll oftentimes say, Oh, that's interesting, which I think <laughs> means she's not that impressed. Uh-huh. <laughs> and so but it but she can't hide when she's really impressed. You know, she she can't hide when she says, whoa like wow like where you know where are you and how did you do this and i think you know i I use my mom as one test i mean i'm also you know my toughest critic and i i lean on many of my colleagues to tell me when i've done you know when it's good and when it's great and when it it just sucks and it's not that good and you got to try harder and you know go back out and redo it um so i don't know i don't know if that was a the answer to the question around technology but i'm I'm open to it, but I, you know, I, I want reliable tools. I don't want to think about the technology that's in my hands. You know, I, one of the, a question I oftentimes get, you know, I'm a photographer and I feel really fortunate that I'm a Nikon ambassador. And so I work very closely with Nikon in Japan and Nikon in the United States and it's, and they didn't choose me. I chose them. I, I chose to use Nikon cameras years ago because I, they were solid and they, they worked, they were reliable. And, and then it turned into a relationship, which I'm super proud to have that relationship. But it's I feel that way uh, about everything and, and the tools that I use. I want the most rock solid solutions so that I can focus on the story and the image that I'm making. This next
0: question is kind of a selfish one, and, and I'm, I'm really curious uh, <laughs> about what the hardest thing is for you to shoot? And I'm, I'm asking this because, you know, we end up shooting a whole bunch of photographs here at Blister and, you know, ski photography and climbing photography and mountain biking and trail running and, and the rest. And I think the single hardest thing, which is definitely kind of, I think, unexpected, is fucking ski groomer shots,
1: Hmm. Wow, that's interesting.
0: And you, it seems like it would be like maybe the easiest thing to do. And we talk about this, and it's like the bane of our existence. And it's you know, we <laughs> it mostly makes us angry, but we have learned to laugh a lot about it. But it just made me curious whether you have anything like that. The uh, man, this like particular genre, you know, you're like here we
1: go. Uh, anything like that? You know, I I, I actually. I know that when I start making the crappiest pictures, and I really have to fight it, like I have to really push myself and, and fight to not let... When I start getting bored, when it when it feels monotonous, I have to say, when it feels like Groundhog Day, when it's kind of, man, I, I feel like I've done this, like I've been here, I've already done this 50 times, you know, look, the first... The first twenty, you're learning and evolving. The next twenty times you shoot it, it's like you're home. You know, you're you're refining, and then you get into and then maybe there's that sweet spot of you know I'm, I'm saying fifty, and then the next ten times you're just nailing it. Like you've been there, done that. Like you got it. Like you're dialed. You're pushing the limits, and then I think I crossed that line to, all right, now I'm just bored. Now I've done this. Now now it's like I feel like I shot this picture. I feel like I've done it every way I possibly can, and and I, I do love i just love like shooting fresh content when i i love getting put in situations that are kind of foreign to me where it's like right on the edge of like i know there's far more qualified people than me to do it but it's going to really challenge me where it's like i'm going to show up and it's um i don't want to say i'm faking it because i'm always real honest like i'm I, and i always make sure that i have like the support and i've done the research and i'm willing to kind of grit it out and like you know even Pay the piper if I need to spend more time um, to make that stunning picture than you know the most qualified the guy they should have hired. <laughs> I'll just stay longer and work harder until I get it. Um, but no, I, I I do really feel that way. I I maybe the better answer is I know when I perform the best. I know when I'm I make the best pictures when I'm fully a participant in what I'm shooting. Meaning I'm. I'm just gonna use the example of, of ski touring. You know, I shoot the best skiing photos when, not when I'm dropped off a chairlift. I'm like, we ski into position and it's rushed and I'm freezing and the athletes are freezing and the public's about to blow through the same terrain. I shoot the best pictures when it's me and the athletes and we're out there in a wild place and I had to hike the same 3,000 vertical feet in the dark with the headlamp. And then the sun starts coming up when we peel our skins and I'm sweating and I put on another layer and sweats drip, you know, like my my eyes are still wet, my heart's pumping as I, you know, put on goggles and try to ski into position and rip my camera out of the bag without it filling with snow. And those are the magical moments. The magical moments is when it's, I'm there with the athletes, we're in a magical place. I'm a, you know, managing, kind of sit being there and safety, you know, I'm, I'm not in an navy zone. I'm not going to get annihilated when they make a turn above me. And then I switch gears into, okay, now it's time to be creative. Like now I, I got myself here. I'm with people that I care about and respect and the sun's coming up over that horizon. And then I block out all of that other stuff, the 3000 feet, the 3am wake up call, the sweat. That's like burning my eye and my heart's pumping And now i just get to be creative i get to switch gears into now i'm blocking all of that out and it's all about what's in that rectangle like what's this composition going to look like you know that what how am i using the light and when am i going to depress that shutter those are those are the magical moments and the and the and the opposite of that when it's the sort of the groundhog day it feels mundane. I've done it a bunch of times. And this isn't a cop out, by the way. I know I know there's people listening to this podcast and they're gonna say, Yeah, man, when you're in that mundane the groundhog day, that's when you need to dig even deeper. And and it's true, that's when you need to dig even deeper. But I know that, you know, when I've done it so many times and it feels like I'm punching the clock, I don't create my best work. It needs to be fresh and I need to be a participant and it, it and it needs to I need to feel like I can like that I haven't hit the ceiling, like I can still push.
0: So what would like a dream assignment
1: look like for you? You know, I mean, now I, and I have to say my career has evolved and I still shoot a lot of still photos. I still love still photography, but a lot of what I do now is I'm shooting and directing video projects. And and I talk about that a bit in the book, you know, it's sort of the um as video as you know DSLRs, video enabled DSLRs hit the market and empowered, you know, guys that wanted to tell stories. Instead of pressing the shutter button, you pressed a record button and all of a sudden you could sort of tell short stories with sound and moving picture. And so the dream for me, and I and I'm and I'm like pinching myself as I'm saying this, the dream for me it's it's doing a kind of a 360 project. And when I say 360, that means we're shooting a video we're shooting stills, we're recording sound, but it's I'm working with a rad group of people, right? Like just awesome people, because that doesn't happen alone. Like those, those projects that are video and stills, you can't do it alone. Like, I mean, you know, there's always exceptions to the rules, but usually that means I'm, I'm working with a team of people, whether it's two other people or, you know, seven other people. And we're telling a story that's compelling and engaging and, and we're sweating along the way and scared occasionally. and it's kind of a, you know a, a, a new frontier. I mean the, you know I had I don't know who said it and I think this is an old business adage, right? When any project that comes your way, you should be asking yourself three questions. you know one, how cool is the project? Is it, is it creative? Two, Who am I going to be working with? And three, how am I going to get paid and how much? And in a perfect world, right, all three of those things fall into place. Awesome story, awesome people, huge paycheck, right? (laughs) Those are, that's it. Like that's the dream, (laughs) you know, rad projects, rad people, giant paycheck. (laughs) And when those things happen, it's pretty damn fulfilling. It's, and, and when I say that about the, you know, the paycheck part's pretty important. I wanna see like all of my buddies getting paid well. I want everyone, because we give a lot in this career. We go away for a long time. We leave the people that we love. We leave our friends. We leave our families. And, and it's really hard when you do that and then you come home and you're broke. And that was fine when I was 20. It was harder when I was 30. And then in your 40s, you kind of have this realization of, man, it kind of doesn't work if you actually wanna have a family and sort of grow up. But i don't want to give up doing those rad trips and and shooting creative content and so that's the dream right the dream is the dream assignments it's those three criteria (laughs) it's those like you know i want to i want to be in magical places real adventure telling a compelling story with awesome people where we're all like living the dream and pushing it and we're helping one another and you know, we're kind of switching into that creative space every day and we're celebrating what we're shooting and we know we're hopefully even moving the needle, like we're kind of changing folks' perception of something that's meaningful. You know, Maybe it's around the environment or it's you know sort of helping people their perceptions of themselves and we get paid for it. Somebody values what we're doing enough to kind of when we get home, we can enjoy our time at home because we, we got paid. We don't have to have a side hustle to pay for the important trips. So let's say
0: the paycheck is in place, you've got a good team, and now you get to pick your assignment, and your options are shoot stills at the Super Bowl, you're doing an assignment on Barack Obama, or you pick your who, whichever current political figure you want. Or concert video of a Kendrick Lamar concert or a kind of profile assignment on Mick Jagger. What are you going with?
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a good one. It would definitely between, it would be between Obama and Mick Jagger for sure. Okay. I couldn't, I couldn't care less about the mainstream sports. You know, I, I, I can't say that I'm a, yeah, it, w- it would be, look, those are, those are two guys, Mick Jagger and Obama, right? They've moved the needle right? They've, they've affected, I mean, I'm, I'm just fascinated by people. Like I would, I I would love to understand what makes Obama tick or Mick Jagger tick. Like what, what is their life like? What was it like? And, you know, I think, I think that's part of our role as storytellers is, you know, I consider myself a journalist, by the way. I I don't, I'm not an artist. It's hard for me to call myself an artist. I'm a, I'm a storyteller. I'm a visual storyteller. I take pictures, I shoot videos. And, and I think one of the things that, you know, allows me to, one of the qualities that allows me to kind of shoot compelling photos is I, I like to believe that I'm easy to hang with, you know. I, <laughs> and so that, that would be a fun test to hang with Obama or Mick Jagger. And this isn't out of like, there, by the way, there's no like star, you know, starstruck, like, God, I'd love to hang out with Obama. This is just for the sake of this conversation. It's, you know, I, I think I'm, I'm pretty good at that role of, you know, I, I'm just pretty good at hanging out like and <laughs> being pretty un, unobtrusive and, you know, kind of, you know, it's not about me, it's about the people and the places that I'm photographing. And uh, no, it'd be f- I'd, I mean, I'd love, I love getting a glimpse into, you know, into folks' lives and kind of understanding what makes them tick. And, you know, not an assignment goes by where I don't take something away that makes me a better person or changes the way I think. And my guess is hanging with Obama or Mick Jagger. They would both kind of change me in some small way. (laughs) Back to this book of yours. We've
0: touched on just a few of the chapters, actually. Before I let you go, let me see if I can force you to single out one of your favorite stories in this book.
1: You know, I, I have to say it's still, I mean, and maybe this is because it's just such at the core of who I am today. I, I guess I'd point at two chapters. Um, one is chapter number five, the image that launched my career. It's my buddy Tom Bulow from college getting a shot in his ass. He's um, <laughs> he's laying on a table in a cantina in Mexico, um, get, you know, getting, and, and this actually makes the conversation sort of go full circle. Actually, it's sort of great that we started with. Where am I going for the month of September and that I'm gravitating, um, toward chapter five, which is this pretty mediocre picture of Tom, um, big wave surfer lived down the hall hallway from me in college, getting a, a shot in his ass with his Patagonia surf trunks pulled halfway down, um, in, in Pasquales, Mexico, because this is, this is the essence of what I'm describing being in a wild place on a trip where the outcome's uncertain, with somebody that you love hanging with, who's an impressive person, and making pictures, documenting that journey where where there's you know there's unknown, like it's not scripted. This is all unscripted, and this mediocre picture, <laughs> um, you know, ran as an ad in Outside Magazine twenty years ago, and in fact, more than then again, caveat: I'm terrible with time. Maybe it was more than twenty years ago. But this photograph got me the first gig shooting the Eco Challenge for Mark Burnett, you know, 20-something years ago. And here I am 20-something years ago later, give or take a few years, going back to shoot Eco Challenge, leading a team of nine photographers and, you know, a producer and editors. And And it started with this gritty picture, which is, you know, the essence of this photo. It's getting out there and shooting pictures, having... Life experiences with people that you care about, and just making pictures that move people. And while this image isn't technically great, it moves people. It makes you ask a question, and it did then, and to this day, I've you know, it's still one of my, you know, while it's it's not the greatest picture (laughs) I've ever shot, it's some of the best memories are attached to that. You know, it's it's a it's a story I love telling. I love sitting and reminiscing with Tom, and maybe I'm God. I don't know. Maybe am I getting old and sentimental now but i don't know all, every one of these pictures is super meaningful to me that's why it's in the book but you know i'm scanning this you know the second page in the table of contents and you know I, i'm and i'm like debating whether i talk about the last chapter which is about my wife and daughter and sort of that you know coming of age and sort of moving on and 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 having a family you know it's like i still read that chapter and i look at that picture and i tear up because it's, you know, that's what this is all about at the end of the day is, is memories and sharing with the next generation and, you know, which there's no one that matters more than like your own offspring and your own family. And then I also look at this photo of Lynn Hill, where it's, you know, like Lynn is an icon. Like I grew up admiring Lynn and, and that story about going up on El Cap with, with Lynn Hill, you know, that was like Lynn's Lynn's awesome. Like that was one of the great moments of my career, hanging next to the Great Roof, shooting virtual reality as Lynn Hill busts out, you know, freeze the Great Roof of El Cap, and it's. You know, I guess I'm pointing at these kind of markers. You know, that that first image is one of the early markers, and then I sort of jump forward, you know, by a bunch of years and. Here I am, like twenty years later, as one of these climbing historians shooting with Lynn Hill, and then I jump forward another couple of years, and I'm I'm talking about kind of sharing these experiences with my my family and child. It's like I think I think that's the beauty of of storytelling and living in the world of being a journalist is that there's just a whole lot of great memories that we get to share and that we were a part of, and and I'm okay I'm okay that I was a part of them as the historian as the documentarian. And because the, those all of those stories have kind of made up, for me, what I think has been a pretty rich life and career, and I'm thankful for that.
0: This book is just such evidence that there is definitely got to be a sequel coming down the line. The historical value of these stories, in addition to the pretty extreme entertainment value of these stories, um, I really think this is... Uh, a book that started as a curiosity to me, you know, as a photo book um, has become a whole lot more than that. And I think that you and Andrew deserve a lot of credit for what you've put together here. And um, like I said, I'm, I'm already looking forward and I'll, I'll put the first pressure on um, before this book is even dropped.
1: I'm looking forward to the sequel well, hey, thanks. I'm, I'm, well, you know, what I'm most excited about is the next 43 years of, of adventure and making pictures and making, making memories.
0: You take good care. And again, we'll talk to you real soon. Bye bye. Thanks a lot. Well, that's it for this edition of the Blister podcast. Thanks to Corey Rich for the conversation. And again, you can head to storiesbehindtheimages.com to order a copy of this book. And to check out Corey's upcoming book tour, where he will be making 18 stops across the country. Thanks, everybody. Please take good care out there, and we will talk to you again next week.